All right, let's open our Bibles to the 31st chapter of 1 Samuel. We're going to finish 1 Samuel this evening. It's been a wonderful journey, and I'm looking forward to next week when we get into 2 Samuel because this whole issue with Saul will be over and new problems will arise. Just when you think you're clear out of the woods, right? But it's just so exciting. I love this part of the Bible, so rich in history, and there's so many things in it as you, as you read it. I would encourage you to read, you know, as, you, as we read through, and hopefully you've been doing this through 1 Samuel and as we get into 2 Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you know, put yourself um, in, in the sandals of, of these people. These are real people. These aren't just characters in a book. These are real people, and they're no different than you and I are. They have the same feelings. I mean, as we have been going through and just watching David running from Saul and just the crazy inconsistencies in his life, you know, knowing that David, at one point, when he was just a young teenage boy, facing off with this very seasoned and experienced warrior like Goliath, and then to see him in the latter part here, you know, as we looked at the last couple of weeks, just seeing David just floundering so badly. And, and it's so easy for us as we read it to kind of get up, on, you know, it's easy to be an armchair quarterback when we read these things and think to ourselves, well, that wouldn't be me. But here's the problem with that thought is that we don't always know what we're going to do until the moment occurs. We don't always know what we're really made of until we are placed in it. And usually it's unexpected when we are in a place, in a situation, in a circumstance that we never planned. And that is always the best gauge, really, I think, of our character. If I know a storm is coming, if I know a hurricane is coming, I make preparations. You know, I put the plywood on the windows, right? And I, I, I make sure I get plenty of water and batteries for the, all the stuff. And, you know, I do all these things, fill up the bathtub with water. You do those things in Florida. Up here, we're like, what are you talking about? It's because you haven't been initiated, okay? <laughs> That's what uh, Margo and Chris have waiting for them, but hopefully not too much. But it's just part and parcel. But anyway, so we don't always know what things are coming our way. Had we known them, we would have prepared for them. But oftentimes, the, the, the time that we are really tried is when, we, when it's thrust upon us. And then we find out really what we're made of. And I, I, that's so true in all of our lives, isn't it? I can talk a big game. I can say, well, I would never do that. Or I would respond by doing this. And I can say all the right things. And God's going, oh, Rob, you sound so good. Wish it were true. <laughs> you know, and then he proves it to me by allowing me to go through something that I wasn't prepared for. That blindsides me. Have you been blindsided by something? It could be a death in the family. It could be two people in your family dying in one week. And there have been people in our fellowship that has happened to. And how do you minister to someone like that? You know, they lose their husband and a child the same week. Or, or the same few months. You know, it's, it, it's just it's horrible to consider. And such was the, the case with David, but I, I love the fact that we can, we can read through this and hopefully we can all learn from it, learn from David's life and learn from Saul's life too as we're looking tonight. Tonight's message I, I titled, The Wages of Sin is Death. So it's going to be a really uplifting 
seeker-friendly kind of message. <laughs> By the title, you know it's going to be pretty dark. <laughs> but not really dark, because we're going to end on a, on a really wonderful note, I believe. And so, But the wages of sin is death. We, we look at this last chapter of Saul, and it's not a, a good end for this man. He started off so well. God gave him, he equipped him with so much. And as you look in those first, you know, chapter 9 and chapter 10 and 11, you, you get the feeling that, hey, you know, Saul is actually off to a good start here. And God made sure that he had the same opportunities that others would have. In fact, he even did things in Saul's life that we don't read about in David's life. You know, and so he's doing that because Saul will never be able to stand. Nobody, none of us will be able to stand before God and say, I didn't have an opportunity. I didn't have a chance. And therefore, I didn't do X, Y, and Z. And God will say, oh, no, you had the opportunity. You just chose to do your own selfish thing. You chose your own road instead of my road, which is best for you. Let me ask a question. If God has a road for you, a plan for your life, and he does, right? We all know that. He has a plan for our life. No matter how old we are, no matter where we're at in our walk, he has, he has a plan. And are you willing to submit to that plan? Are you willing to submit to the plan? You know, it's a, it's a good question to ask. The wages of sin is death. We know this verse very well. In Romans chapter 6, it says this, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. A wage, we looked at this last Sunday, a wage is something that is earned, isn't it? If it's something that's earned, then it's not a gift. It's not something given by grace. It's something that you earn. So uh, the, the wages of sin, that what I get for being disobedient, what I get for being rebellious and disobedient, what I get for that is death. That's what I get. Now, it may not be a physical death immediately, but it's certainly a death spiritually because what I'm doing is as I continue in my sin and I don't get busted for it and I, and I don't get convicted over my sin, I continue in that sin. And what that's doing in my spiritual life is, is, is producing death in me. And sometimes for some people, it will actually bring about an untimely physical death, which we will look at. But a wage is something that is earned. And the wage may lead to physical death. A sin unto death, we hear about that in 1 John chapter 5. We'll look at that. But the wage may also lead to eternal damnation, which I believe is the context of Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're talking about something eternal here. So it's not just a physical death and then I'm done. No, it's talking about an eternal damnation as well. I think if you look at that in context, it's really that's what it's saying. But the gift of God, the gift of God is Jesus Christ. He gave us that gift in, in his son, right? And so there is a sin leading to death. John tells us that in his first epistle in chapter 5, verse 16. He says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So are you really confused? When you look at that verse, I've read that a number of times, and I'm just like, I just scratch my head sometimes. But 
There is a sin not leading to death. We know that all unrighteousness is sin. Sin ultimately leads to death. We just read the verse, right? We have to put it in context and frame it within what we do know in the word of God. The wages of sin is death. So there's a sin that will lead to ultimate death. And there may be sins that, will, that are, um, there is a sin leading to death. And that sin is, is something, let me just give you an example. We know that lying is a sin. We can lie and lie and lie and lie, and we can live until we're 80 or 90 years old, and that's a sin, wouldn't you agree? It may not be a sin that leads to death. It ultimately will lead to death if not repented of, right? But there is a sin leading to death, and that is a sin where there are consequences immediate for the sins that we do. For instance, you may be a drug dealer, or maybe you're a drug addict. And I've known people like this. They claim to believe in God, but they have this issue, and it's a real issue in their life, and I don't want to minimize it. But they, they're, they're, they're continuing to take heroin, and, and they, they call upon the Lord. They know it's wrong. They, they're struggling with this addiction, and it's a real addiction. And God's got a hold of them, but for some reason, they just haven't given up on it. They haven't, you know, whatever. And then they get a hot shot, and they die. It's a sin leading to death. Or what about the man who is promiscuous or the woman who is promiscuous and is sleeping around and, and, and contracts some kind of disease that is lethal? Back in the 80s and 90s, AIDS used to be, would kill anybody. You know, it was just a matter of time. They didn't really know anything about it. That's a sin leading to death. And I believe as we look at the passage we're looking at tonight, Saul, I believe, had these sins Sins, plural, leading to death. You remember, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel speaks to Saul after his disobedience with the event concerning Amalek. God told him to to wipe out Amalek and everything, and Saul did not do it. And, and I believe it's at this scripture, if you open your Bibles to, um, you don't have to, I mean, just keep your finger in chapter 31, but go to chapter 15 and go to verse 23 and, and put a star by that. Put a star by 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, because I believe this is when Saul crossed the Rubicon. When he crossed the Rubicon, the point of no return there came a point, and it was very quick with Saul, and God demanded obedience from those who are going to serve him. And I think there's something about that, too. He's a little more quick to hold his leaders on a tighter, they got a greater accountability. We know that from the Word of God that that is true. And he certainly did this with Saul. And so it says, um, Samuel said to Saul, "'Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices?' As in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And that is the verse you want to put a star by, because this at this point he has crossed the Rubicon. And we're going to look at that uh, in context here. Um, we're going to look tonight, and unfortunately, rebellion and stubbornness are the hallmarks of Saul's life. Wish it was different, and I know the Lord wishes that dif- uh, as well. But tonight, we're not going to look at ten highlights. Before we get into the chapter, it's a fairly, sh- fairly short chapter, but before we get into it, I want to look at ten lowlights of Saul's life. Not highlights, but lowlights 
opportunities in his life that were the low. He, he only had a few maybe highlights in his, in his life, at least recorded in the, in the scriptures. But there are far more many low lights, things that he did that brought him to this place where we're going to read tonight. And the first one is in the 8th chapter. Turn with me to the 8th chapter of Samuel. And we're going to read through the first nine verses. You remember the first low light of Saul was the fact that he was chosen king. Now that doesn't sound like a bad thing, but God didn't want the people. He gave them a choice to govern them himself, which he had been doing for quite a long time, and they were not without anything. Or, But the people wanted a king. They wanted a king like all the other nations around them. So and, and if I were Saul and, and, and the Lord had chosen me, I'd say, you know what, I'm not up for the task. <laughs> I'm just going to back out of this, Lord. I want to be governed by you. I don't want to govern these people because uh, I know what I'm doing. What the, the, the desire of the people right now is not good. It was a sin that they desired this. And notice it came to pass when Samuel was old and he made his sons judges over Israel. And it gives the name of his sons there. And they were judges in Beersheba. In verse 3, But his sons didn't walk in the ways of the Lord. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, perverted justice. And notice what happened in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. We want to be just like everybody else. Have you heard that before? Maybe when you're a teenager? You want to be just like everybody else. I want to be unique, but I want to be like everybody else. I want, to be, I, want to, I want me to be me, but I want to look like him. I want to dress like I want to listen to the same music. You know, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? They wanted to be just like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and they've served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them, forewarn them, and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Now we're not going to read this entire chapter, but in verses 10 through 18, Samuel rehearses before them how kings are, and the things that they're going to do. And then finally, down in verse 18, God says, And you will cry out on that day because of your king, that whom, you have chosen, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us. Can you see the, the can you just hear the rebellion? It's like, do you know what, what's going to happen? That your king is going to make your sons run before his chariots. He's going to make your daughters be cooks and work in the vineyards. You're not going to see them that much. They're going to put them to work. No, but we want a king. We want a king. And they're just pounding their fists. We, we want what? Just give us what we want. Get out of our way. Boy, stubbornness in the human heart. And I know it because I have it as well. <laughs> we can be so stubborn. We want what we want. Be careful what you ask for because you might just get it and regret it. Right. So they said, no, but we will have a king over us that, he may, that we may be like all the nations. We want to be just like everybody else. 
and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So this is the first low light of Saul's um, career, is the fact that he was chosen, <laughs> and he was willing to go through with it. I think I would have just, you know, especially under, those, uh, under that pretense, I wouldn't have wanted to be Saul. I think I would have just said, no, thank you. But turn with me now to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Look at chapter 10. We're going to thumb right through very quickly these chapters, and we're, we're looking at 10 specific lowlights, not highlights, of Saul's career. In 1 Samuel 10, verse 8, notice uh, this was the command that Samuel gave to Saul. Immediately after he anointed him king, what did he tell him? You might want to put an asterisk by this verse as well because this is important. He says, you shall go down before me, Samuel said to Samuel, or uh, Samuel said to Saul, you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now, Saul was a Benjamite, and Samuel was a Levite. Who do you think was supposed to do the offerings? The Levite, Samuel, that's what he grew up, he was under the, the tutelage of Eli. That was his job, that was his role in this whole thing, right? Now go to uh, chapter 13. And again, this is the second low light of Saul. Chapter 13, verse 7, it says, And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling. And then he waited, notice, then Saul waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring me a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Is there a problem? He wasn't supposed to do it. Now, was Samuel on time? I am sure the seventh day didn't pass. I'm sure that it was just late on the seventh day. And I think sometimes the Lord allows us to be tested when, we, when he says, I'm going to do something by a certain time. And, and if it doesn't come by that time, then we take matters in our own hands. But, you know, sometimes the clock is like 11.59 and then he comes through. <laughs> Have you ever experienced that in your own life where you're, you've, you're waiting on the Lord and like, Lord, I got to pay this rent. I, you know, uh, if, I don't get the, if I don't walk the check up to the landlord and, and like at midnight, you know, I'm going to get a surcharge and it's going to be, and, and the Lord at 1130, you know, you open your, you hear a knock on the door and somebody scuttles away and you open the door and there's an envelope with cash on it. And you're like, oh, it's 1130. You had, you had 30 minutes before your head was rolling, you know, so. Sometimes these things happen, but Samuel, or, or, or Saul, excuse me, did not wait. And now it happened, as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came. <laughs> Notice, at the 11th hour, at the 11th hour and 59 minutes, and Saul went out to meet him, and that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and, and, I, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled. I felt compelled. There you go. Feelings, feelings, nothing more than feelings. Feelings can be dangerous. I felt compelled. I felt, oh, I just felt it in my heart. I'm just kind of trying to come into touch with my feelings. 
I felt compelled, and I offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he had commanded you. For now the Lord would have established you, your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you did not keep what the Lord commanded you. So there's Saul's second low light. He wasn't obedient. He was supposed to wait. He didn't wait. What about the third one? Turn with me to chapter 14. We're just going to go right in order here. Look at chapter 14, beginning in verse 24. It was at this time that Saul proclaimed a forced fast on his men until they had victory over the Philistines. Jonathan had started this. He attacked the Philistines, and it really started something really wonderful um, but, but then, um, you know, they had great victory, but Saul made this rash oath, a very rash oath. When you're, when you're fighting in a battle and you've got a bunch of men on the battlefield in the heat of the day, what's the worst thing you could do? Deny them of food and water, <laughs> at least food. It takes energy, doesn't it? And so Saul, feigning to be spiritual, goes, nobody eat anything until we vanquish the enemy. It sounded so good. It sounded so spiritual, but it was deadly wrong. And in fact, it almost got his own son killed because his son didn't know about the fast and he dipped his rod in 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 honeycomb and ate it and Saul found out about it and was about ready to kill his own son. And his son didn't even hear about it. So we see this rash oath that Saul did. And then the fourth low light, low light, that Saul did was when, and this was the Rubicon right here. Look at chapter 15. We just looked at this a few minutes ago. This event with Amalek was the last straw for Saul. Notice in the first three verses, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. And here it is. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. And here's the command, a very clear, direct command from God to Saul. Now go and attack Amalek, and here are the the instructions. Utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And now go down to verse 7. And so Saul, he attacked the Amalekites from Havilah to the way of Shur, and he took Agag alive. And he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. Notice, they spared the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So was that God's command to Saul? No, he said utterly destroy everything, including the king of Agag. Because of what they did to them, to the children of Israel. Amalek is always a type of the flesh, and God is always at enmity against our flesh. And so ought we. We ought to engage in that and not give our flesh one inch. We do, but we need to be very careful. We need to um, be careful of that. So, now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret... 
that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned his back from following me, and he has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel, verse 12, rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. That's always nice to do. And he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. And then Saul, Samuel excuse me, went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So now Saul is going, I've done it, I've done what the Lord asked, asked me to do. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? He can hear in the background, you know, you can almost see this like curtain, you know, and all these sheep are behind, <laughs> you know, making these noises. Yeah, I, I, I did everything, I, I killed everything. And, and Samuel's going, uh, What's what the, you know, the mutton behind the curtain? I can hear him back there. What's all that about, Saul? All the people, they made me do it. Yeah, I thought I'd save some of them for, you know, for sacrifice for later, you know, to the Lord. And, you know, it was the people. They made me do it. So he does this blame game with the people. And, and so, and they didn't kill. We're, we're just going to cruise along here in this. Um, and he found out that Agag wasn't destroyed. And so ultimately Samuel brought Agag out. And Agag is walking very tenderly. And saying, surely the bitterness of death is past. In other words, we're good, right? <laughs> I'm here, and I'm kind of like all alone now, and we're good, right? We're just going to kind of let this slide. And Samuel goes, no, I'm not going to let it slide. I'm going to finish what God told Saul to do. And he hacked Agag to pieces. And then he blames it on the people. But down in verse 23, I put an asterisk by this verse. Let's start in verse 22. We read this earlier. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fatter rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And I can't help but wonder if this was a little bit of a, a foreshadowing from what we read about last week with his uh, Saul's um, flirting with witchcraft, seeking the, the witch at Endor, doing the seance to bring up Samuel, who had died at that time. He says, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And so this was the straw that broke the camel's back, and then God is basically done with Saul. He's basically done. But then it gets even more twisted. Because the fifth low light... I hate to say low light because I'm just going to say highlight from now on because uh, uh, it reminds me of another word that I don't like. So uh, the fifth highlight here <laughs> is Saul seeking to kill David uh, by thrusting him through with a javelin. Remember, David played before Saul because an evil spirit had... Um, he, Saul had come under the, the, the domination of an evil spirit. And whenever David played his harp the evil spirit would go away. But after um, chapter 17, which is where we read about David slaying Goliath, now we look at chapter 18 and 19, and we see David playing before the king, and Saul is getting so jealous at this time of David and the fact that he can play, he can, he can sing, he can dance, he can, you know, he, he's a great warrior, everyone's singing about him, and he's just, he's like the poster child for everything that's good, and Saul's is just kind of his life and everything is just kind of tanking because of his rebellion. And so that was the fifth highlight of his life. 
And not only that, but he had promised after killing Goliath, he'd promised David to give him his daughter, Merab. But what does he give him? Or give him Michal, I'm sorry, but he gives Merab instead of Michal. So he's, not, he's, he's deceitful. He's not a man of his word. And then the sixth highlight was Saul killing Ahimelech and the 85 priests at Nob. Nob was where the, the, the priesthood was, where the tabernacle was. And remember, after Saul had found out that David had gone to Ahimelech in the land of Nob, or in the city of Nob, that Saul questioned Ahimelech and had him come down to Gibeah where the king was. And he thought that somehow Ahimelech was conspiring against Saul because Ahimelech had given David Goliath's sword, which was behind the ephod there in the house of God there. In the, in the tabernacle. And so Saul is insanely jealous. So he kills, he has Doeg, remember, kill the 85 priests, including Ahimelech. And one of the guys, one of the young men, Abinad, um, um, uh, I think his name is Abinadab, I have to get there. He got away. He got away and he actually served David. Actually, that's not his name. I just slipped me. So the sixth highlight was Saul killing, uh, oh, we, we actually looked at that. Sorry. The seventh one was Saul's insincerity concerning David after being spared by David at En Gedi. Remember, David uh, or Saul had gone into one of the caves to relieve himself, and David and his men were in the recesses of the cave. And, and then once he left and David revealed himself, Saul kind of feigned to be, and I think at the time he might have been sincere, but he was... He was so inconsistent. He was claiming, you know, oh, thank you, David, for sparing my life. The Lord, the Lord bless you, my child. You know, but inside, it was just underneath, it was just on the top of the surface, these comments, these feelings. And the same thing happened again when he was in the, at Hakalah in the wilderness of Ziph. The very same thing. David has one of his men go over, and Abishai, his nephew, goes over and gets the spear and the cruise of water by Samuel, or Saul's head and leaves, and gets over across the ravine, and they call out to them, and the same thing happens. There's this, these crocodile kind of tears from Saul saying, David, my son, thank you for sparing me. Now I know that you're a righteous man. Now I know that your kingdom will prevail, and it was all just a, a very surfacy feeling again, because we know that after that, he pursued him. He continued to pursue him. And then the ninth highlight was when Saul consults the medium, the witch at Endor. It was at this meeting, if you recall, that the witch, because of the seance that she was performing, she brought up Samuel, and God allowed it, because this was the very evening before Samuel, or excuse me, Saul and his sons would die in battle. And Saul learned something that night that he probably wished would never, he'd never have heard. He found out exactly what's going to happen the next day. And had he not consulted the medium, which was supposed to be driven out of the land according to the law of Moses, they were supposed to be killed. Mediums and spirit, you know, witches and those kinds of things. They were supposed to be um, stoned and rid them out of the land. And here Saul is going to the woman that he had cast out because God had turned his ear on Saul because of his rebellion. And then finally, 
during that time with the witch. He, she finally brings up Samuel, and, and Saul answered Samuel through the, through the witch, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. Do you see how silly this is? If God has turned his back on you, in a, in a sense, if, if God has kind of cut off his communication with you, do you think he's going to give message, a message, a, a different message to one of his servants to give to you? No, that's not going to happen. What should I do? And then Samuel said, so why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord, and the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because, here's the reason, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow... You and your sons will be with me. In other words, in the grave. You and your sons are going to be with me in the grave tomorrow, Saul. And the Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you will be, you and your sons will be with me. Some have said that this is, uh, this is the only evidence, as far as I know, that someone might give that Saul may have gone to heaven. But I believe that Samuel, what Samuel is meaning here is that Saul and his sons would join Samuel again in the grave, not necessarily heaven. You know, it's conjecture, and we really don't know where um, Saul went. But it doesn't look very good. We know from the scriptures that there are only two places that once we die physically... We either go to Sheol, which is a, a Hebrew term for hell or Hades, or we go to paradise, also known as Abraham's bosom, or we know it as heaven. There's no soul sleep. There's no intermediate place. There's no purgatory. It's nowhere to be found in the Bible. You can read Luke 16, chapters, uh, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, about the rich man and Lazarus. And there you get a really good understanding of this, uh, where people go, even in the Old Testament, when they die, where do they go? Abraham's bosom is the same thing as paradise. It's the same thing as heaven. Where did the rich man go? He went to Hades or hell. Same thing is true today. To be absent from the body, for us believers, is to be present with the Lord. But if somebody dies unbelieving, they go to hell. They go to hell. And then finally, the very last highlight or low light of Saul's life was in this very chapter when he swore by the Lord to the lady, because the lady is very nervous because she knew that Saul had driven out all the mediums. And so Saul is here, and he is like, um, I, need to, I need you to bring up Samuel for me. And she's like, um, and he disguised himself, so she didn't know who he was. And she's like, well, the king has you know, told us not to do these things, and I don't want to die. So, and he's like, no, trust me. And then he sw- notes what he says in chapter 28, verse 10. He says, and Saul swore to her by the Lord, as, the Lord li- as Jehovah lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Now, if God says something, are you going to swear and say that he didn't say it? Because that's really what Saul did. That, that, that's like, really? 
<laughs> God told me to, 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 to kill all the mediums, and now I'm going to say, uh, the Lord, I swear by God you know, that nothing will happen to you. Well, the Lord had already pronounced judgment on that. So why are you entertaining it? And so all of this leads us up to this last final chapter. And wouldn't you agree with me, as you look at these ten different things, it doesn't look very good for Saul. You can see his rebellion, his, his stubbornness, a very different life than what we read in David. David had his mistakes, but what was the difference between David and Saul? David repented. David cracked like an egg. David asked God to forgive him. And there were consequences that happened to David even after his sin. But Saul never did that. He never turned. He never turned. He continued and continued. And so now we get into chapter 1. It says, Now the Philistines... I'm sorry, not chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 31, excuse me. It says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain at Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa is about 16 miles. If you were to look at a map of, of Israel up in the Sea of Galilee, if you go southwest about 16 miles, you'll run into this Mount Gilboa where this battle had occurred. And it's right there in the Jezreel Valley, the valley that we call the Valley of Armageddon. It's a, it's a perfect place for a battle. It's very flat. If you go to Israel with us next March, you'll, we, we go right through all of these things, and you can see it with your own eyes. It's really amazing. And so, verse 2, it says that the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Machishula, uh, Saul's sons. Notice that his sons were killed first and probably protecting their father, the king. You know, they die in their own battle. And Jonathan, this, this wonderful man that David and, and, and he had such a great relationship, it was one of David's few allies, well, his few best friends in the whole world was Jonathan. I mean, they had such a, and this was Saul's son. What an interesting kind of relationship, knowing that, you know, your father wants to kill your best friend. And Jonathan helped David until there came a point where they couldn't be together anymore, and David was on the run for fear of his life. But, but here we have this, you know, uh, Jonathan also dies in battle. And the battle became very fierce against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor-bearer, now draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me or torture me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and he fell on it himself. And so you can understand the situation. I mean, if the Philistines got a hold of the king of Israel, they would play games with him. They would, they would torture him. They would make sport of him. And Saul didn't want that to happen, obviously. But he took matters in his own hands again, and he falls on the sword. <laughs> he commits suicide. This was certainly a taboo thing in the Jewish culture, and it only happened a few times in the Old Testament that somebody committed suicide. One of the most famous examples is in Judges chapter 16, verse 30, when Samson, remember, He's in the, 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 the house of, of the Philistines or in their temple, and he puts his hand on each side of the post, and the Lord comes upon him in great strength, and he pushes these pillars, and the whole thing, you know, without those two center supports, uh, 
the whole roof caves in. Thirty, you know, three thousand Philistines died, and he died with them. And even in spite of his moral failings, you know, Samson he does this. And yet he's listed in Hebrews chapter eleven, in the Hall of Faith we call it. And what does it say? It's in Hebrews eleven thirty-two. You might want to put a little uh, scripture reference off next to this verse here. Hebrews eleven thirty-two. It says. The author says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Really? Samson? This man who uh, kind of gave in to the lust of the flesh as often as he did, and yet he, God was still working in his life. Is it, it, we looked at that. It's not the kind of life you want to mimic. But there were elements of Samson's life that God was involved in very clearly. But I bring this up because there have been positions that denominations have taken. And I remember when I was young, I heard that if a person committed suicide, that's an automatic ticket to hell. Did any of you hear that? We've all heard that, right? Denominations have taken that stance that when a person commits suicide, it's an automatic sentence to hell. But I don't believe that that's necessarily the true. And again, it's, it's a conjecture, and you don't have to believe me. And while it may be true that the majority or perhaps the vast majority of people who have committed suicide, they do so because of some great sin in their life that's unrepented of, and then they commit suicide. And in that case, yes, they, they don't go to heaven because of their sin, right? Because of their sin issue. But there are always different circumstances. We know in the, in the Ten Commandments it says, you shall not murder. Exodus twenty thirteen. You shall not murder. Now, murder is... I mean, you could technically say you're murdering yourself, but it's really speaking of other people. And again, I'm not trying to build a doctrine here at all. I'm just saying that when you murder somebody, you're murdering somebody else. And and certainly you don't want to, um, I'm not condoning, you know, killing yourself (laughs) by by any means. But there are people who have killed themselves in the Bible, you know, specifically, and, and have gone to hell, too. And, and, and Saul could have been one of those. We certainly know that Judas in the New Testament was one of those who did. But I've known and I've heard of men of God who are strong Christians, who went through great suffering, and they ended their own life because of the torment and the pain. And I believe these men are in heaven. There are two individuals on my mind right now. I know they were men of God. And this is a hard thing to talk about because, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to build anything, any doctrine here. I'm just saying that God is much bigger. But we should never encourage or condone such a thing and always steer people away from it. And where the Bible is quiet about the, this issue, we need to be careful and not be dogmatic either, right? So what is the bottom line here? The bottom line is Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. God speaking to the children of Israel before they crossed over into the promised land. What did he say to them? He says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. There is the the commandment, right? It's a wonderful commandment. Choose life. Choose life. Don't choose death. Don't choose death. 
I remember there was a, a person who came to me, and they were having a really tough time, and I think they were looking for some support to end their life. And I would never want to tell them, you know, um, you know, God does not condone this sort of thing at all, at all. And we certainly don't want to give the okay or license to do that because that, that, that's, not the, that's not the solution. It's better to let, wait on the Lord and let him do what he's going to do. And it's easy. It, it's, it's easy for us to say if you're, you know, there's one gentleman that I'm thinking of. The medication, the insurance ran out, and his medication was exceptionally necessary. Otherwise, he was in literally mortal agony. And he ended his life, you know, and um, it's a horrible thing. But I believe that man is in glory. I believe that man is in glory. Again, not to build a doctrine about it. But, you know, it's just so, it's so interesting how we can come, you know, we see an instance like this where Saul commits suicide. Now, in his case, he probably did go to hell. <laughs> Don't know for sure, but it's very possible, very probable. Don't know. That's for the Lord to decide. But the main thing is to choose life. Always choose life. Don't choose death. Whatever problem you're going through, you don't need to end it. The Lord is on your side. The Lord is your help, your strong tower. Run into him. Be patient. Wait upon him. Number verse 5, it says, And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on a sword and died with him. You understand that for Saul to die and his armor bearer to be alive would be a, a real big problem because the armor bearer was supposed to be the one who would take the hit before Saul would, right? So for him to live would be a very bad place. They would probably put him to death because why, why are you alive and your master is dead? He should have stood in front of the spear or whatever he had to do. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And that's exactly what Saul or what Samuel had told him, what he had prophesied when Saul had brought him up in the seance, right? He told him exactly what was going to happen. And behold, it came to pass exactly as, as it happened. And this more likely, when it says all of his men died together the same day, more than likely it was just the men who were closest to Saul or those in his own personal regiment that were all around him because we know that Abner and others survived this battle. And so it wasn't all the men of Israel, but those around Saul. So verse 7, it says, And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, notice they, they forsook the cities and they fled out of fear. And the Philistines came and they dwelt in those cities. And so it happened the next day that when the Philistines came out to strip the slain because the battlefield was just filled with uh, men who had died, and so what they would do in typically every battle, they'd come out and take the swords and anything that was useful to them and take it off of them and use it for their own good. And so, so what happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and they stripped off his armor and they sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people." 
You know, it's interesting to note that David, remember, had cut off the head of Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, and now the Philistines cut off Saul's head, who was the leader of Israel. It's kind of interesting how the tables turn here. And then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreth, these female deities of, of um, um, fertility goddesses. And they fastened, notice, his body to the wall of Bethshan. And you might want to put in your margin of your Bible 1 Chronicles 10. 1 Chronicles 10 actually is pretty much verbatim to what we are reading here. But there's a few details that are left out. Because notice, they, they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and then they fastened his body and his son's bodies to the wall of Bethshan. And 1 Chronicles pretty much tells the same uh, event, but it doesn't mention this part about the bodies being pinned to the wall. And it was just an omission. It's not a really big deal, but I think it's really interesting that at the end of Chronicles 10, in verse 13 and 14, it gives really there a understanding of why Saul's life ended. And it tells us very clearly there, 1 Chronicles 10, 13 and 14, these are two verses you might want to put a, a star by or whatever, but it says, Saul died, notice, for his unfaithfulness which he had committed against the Lord. The wages of sin is death, isn't it? That's why he died, because of his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against Jehovah, because, notice, specifically, he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord, and therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. David, the son of Jesse. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, and all the valiant men arose and traveled all night, because Jabesh-Gilead, remembers about 10 or 15 miles to the west of the Jordan River, to the east, I'm sorry, of the Jordan River, so they would cross the river and then go up, up north a little bit, and they would get into Bethshan, which is one of ten cities called the Decapolis. They were Roman colonies, Roman cities. And Bethshan, it's also called Scythopolis, it was the only city, Bethshan, was the only city that was on the west side of the Jordan River. All the other nine cities were on the other side of the Jordan River and the land you would call, you know, Jordan, Syria, and that area. And so... All the valiant men rose, and they traveled all night. They took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall at Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh, and they burned them there. We'll find out later on when we get into 2 Samuel that David, after they had burned the bodies and they buried them under a tamarisk tree, we find that David later, after he comes into his own kingdom, he admonishes the, the men of Jabesh for the kindness that they did. But then he takes the bones uh, of Saul and Jonathan and his sons, and he brings them back to Benjamin, and he buries them in Benjamin, where Saul was born, along with Jonathan and his, his sons. I'd, 
We don't have time tonight, but I want you to look at a couple of things. Because these men of Jabesh-Gilead, there's a history here that's really interesting. And it would take us another 30 minutes, I think, to really kind of tell the story. So what I want you to do, what I'd like you to do, is to look at a couple passages. The first one is in 1 Samuel chapter 11. If you want to write at this moment in your Bible, just write 1 Samuel 11. Read that whole chapter because that was Saul's, one of his first campaigns as king is to save the men of Jabesh-Gilead from the Ammonites who were attacking them. But the people of Jabesh-Gilead and Benjamin had a really unique relationship, and that relationship is really brought out for us if you look at uh, Judges chapters 19 through 21. If you look at those three chapters, it puts into very clear understanding of why there was this affinity, this friendship between Jabesh and Saul or or the tribe of Benjamin. It's a really interesting thing, and, and we don't have time to go into it, but I would encourage you to read it because it'll make this passage really come to life, and you'll understand the, the camaraderie, the, the love, the honor that was there and why it was there. Because that's important because, again, these things aren't just stories, folks. You know, when we read this, you know, people talk about David and Goliath and Jonah and the whale, and they talk, oh, these are great children's stories, you know, and they have some, you know, um, moral, you know, lessons in them. Uh, but it's, it's more than that. These are real things. And God wants you to take them seriously because just like when we read in the book of Acts, what we read in Jonah and what we read at David and Goliath, these things really happen. If you go to Israel with us, we go right to the valley of Elah where that battle occurred between David. And you'll look at the mountains on each side and you'll picture it in your head. And it's amazing to be there and to see and imagine what happened right there where you're standing as we're reading that passage and you're right there. And if you could just fast forward a couple thousand years, about 3,000 years, you would see the man on the battlefield and David out there, a young strapling with a, with a, with a, <laughs> you know, a sling and Goliath looming over him, casting a shadow over David. So, verse 13, notice what happened. Then they took their bones and they buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh. And they fasted seven days. And so this is what the men of Jabesh-Gilead did once they found out that the Philistines had killed Saul and his sons. And after they had um, really paraded their bodies around, such mutilating them and hanging them on the wall at Beth Shan. That's another place we visit when we go to Israel. And they hung their bodies there on the wall. And these men, these faithful men, said, we can't stand for that for what he did and how he helped us and how our lives are inextricably woven together. We will not have that. We're going to go take his bodies down, their bodies, and he brought them back, and they crossed over the Jordan River going eastward and then finally another 10 or 15 miles into into Jabesh, and they buried the bones there by a tamarisk tree. So we read about this ending of Saul's life. And I just want to turn it around here. Because for us to end this tonight, just on this very minor chord, (laughs) would be criminal. But how about you? How about you? Do you want to live a life like that of Saul that has a question mark over it? Because we don't know. I mean, you you can talk to 10 different pastors and 
uh, you might get 10 different answers about where Saul is and, and what, what really what his character was. And actually, most of them might agree together, actually. Maybe a few would have a different opinion. But do you want to have a question mark over your life? Or do you want a life that is secured, that is assured, that is confirmed? Because, folks, you and I, as believers in Christ, we can have that assurance. If you don't have that assurance, come up and pray. I'd love to pray with you. Pray with somebody else. You don't need me. But let's pray about that if you don't have an assurance, because it's important that you do. Saul never had that assurance because of his rebellion. You see, the longer we play footloose and fancy free with sin, the less likely we're going to have that kind of assurance that we're really one of his. And it's supposed to be that way. I mean, you're not, you're not, I mean it is true that you, you know, we can have assurance of salvation, but when we start flirting around with sin, the devil whispers in your ear, and we believe him, don't we? We believe him when he says, oh, you're not one of his. Even though you may, even though you are, and maybe you are. But maybe you've also been playing games, and you really aren't. I'm, it's not for me to judge that. So why have the question mark? Why go through your life with the question mark? Make your calling and your election sure. What kind of life are you leading? What is the overall tenor of your life? Is it one of obedience to God? Is it one marked by what we read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22? Is it one marked by love, joy, and peace, and you know, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Is our life marked by that? Are those hallmarks in our life, those characteristics of Christ in us? Are those things coming out, or are we just stifling it down and, and not doing anything with it? See, Saul never had, he, he never did that. He never had, he, he just continued to go downhill, continued to go downhill. And we looked at the 10 lowlights of his life, not the highlights, the lowlights. We looked at this. Why would you want to live a life like that? Why would you want to be a Samson, even though he evidently made it to heaven by, by, by God's grace? Why would you want to be a lot back in Genesis 19 and 20? Why would you want to live a life compromised? Sell yourself out to Jesus Christ. Totally sell out to him. Give everything in your heart to him. Don't hold anything back. Put away all of the stuff and get on our knees and on our faces and confess our sin and say, God, forgive me. I have been playing games with you, Lord. You know there's things in my life that I've been, I've been hiding from everybody, but I can't hide from you. I can't hide from you, Lord. I don't want to hide anymore. Do you ever get tired of hiding? Does anybody here like to hide in the shadows? Do you know the dark and the light are the same with God? You know, we somehow think, oh, if I turn off the light, nobody can see me. Ah. I can meet in the back alley and do these dark things, and God doesn't see me. He's like, oh, I can see you even better when the dark, in the darkness. I dwell in darkness. I dwell in the light. They're both the same to me. But are our lives marked like that? Do we have the fragrance of Christ? I love what Paul says to the Corinthians in his second letter in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. He says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And 
through us diffuses the fragrance, the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Does your life have the fragrance or the aroma of Jesus on it? When you walk into a room of people that know you, do they have an expectation of how you're going to be, the things that you're going to say? Do they have an expectation? Should they have an expectation? Certainly they should. Should you walk into a room of Christians and, and, and should, should they expect to hear good things coming from us? Should they hear hearts that are really investing in one another? Or should they, be, uh, should they be expecting us to tell the dirty joke or to use filthy language? What is the expectation? Do we want to be like a Saul and have the question mark? I ask you again, because for us to end this tonight on just his lowlights of his life, without examining our own life, would be criminal. Does your life have the fragrance of Christ about it? Do people know when you walk into a room, they can expect what demeanor you're going to have, what you might say, what you might say? Do you have the fragrance of Christ about us, or are we compromised so that those who know us are comfortable swearing or telling off-color jokes around us, knowing that we might and probably will laugh along with the rest of them? Can they expect that? But what does Paul tell the Colossians, and the Holy Spirit is telling us tonight, but now you yourselves are to put off all these things, Christians, us, the family of God, the one whom Jesus loves. And you know what? i got to tell you, he loves you. You know, the fact that you're here tonight and you've been coming, you came to hear the word of God. And you're not going to leave empty because we have been in the word of God. And he loves you. And you know, he loves us enough to tell us the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts, doesn't it? I very rarely learn anything when everything is going really well. But when I go through and I'm challenged and I walk away in tears with my tail between my legs... It's when I go back to my room and I cry and the Lord restores me. See, he loves us enough to tell us the truth, to tell us the hard things. We are to put off these things, the anger, the wrath, the blasphemy, the filthy language out of our mouth. What does he, Peter tell us in Second Peter? He says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. For if you do these things... If you have uh, self-control and, and you, know, uh, you persevere, if you have these things, you will never stumble. Ending now in Exodus chapter 28, there's a wonderful thing that the high priest would wear on his head. Exodus 28, verse 36, it's speaking of the words that are engraved on Aaron's turban. Aaron being the high priest, he would have a turban on his head. And what would happen, and it says in verse 36, You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet. So it would be in, in some kind of really elaborate script in the Hebrew. And it would say this in all caps, HOLINESS TO THE LORD. And it would be right on his forehead. What is the forehead to us? It's our thought life. And holiness is being separate from the world. Separated from something and separated unto someone. Separated from the world but separated unto Christ, unto God. 
Do we have, like Aaron, the high priest of the Old Testament, the words emblazoned on our forehead that says, Holiness to the Lord. Am I careful about the things I bring into this noggin of mine? Am I careful about the things that I watch, the things that I hear, the things that I see? Am I separated unto him? And I know that you all are. And you know what? I want to encourage you to continue in that. Continue in it. Continue in the love of God. His love is so wonderful, isn't it? He wants to love you more than you can possibly imagine. And he's not angry with you. If you are in Christ, the enmity is past. He is placed upon Christ. That's what makes his atonement on the cross so special for us. Do you know that? Do you believe it? How do you want to be known when you die, should the Lord tarry? Next week, we're going to look at the first chapter in 2 Samuel, Samuel, and there is a song that David wrote, a song of lament for Saul and his sons, specifically Jonathan, Saul and Jonathan. We're going to look at that psalm or that song that David wrote, but what would people say about you? How do you want to be known if the Lord tarries and we pass from the scene? And it's up to you tonight to make that decision right now going forward. How do I want to be? I want to read to you the lyrics of a song. And after we're done tonight, I've asked um, Mark to play the song as you're you know, talking and stuff like that. But here's the lyrics of the song, and, and when you hear it, it'll make total sense. It's a song that my wife actually brought to my attention when we were just friends. We're still friends, by the way. We're best friends. We're married. We're good. Everything's good. But when, yeah, back in those days when we were friends, you know, not, you know, she had the CD. It was by Jeff Moore in the Distance, and it was called Evolution. Not what you think it is. But one of the songs on that CD was Live to Tell, and I'd like to read them to you because I think this is perfect how we end this tonight because of the way Saul's life ended and how the exhortation that I just gave you. It says, we've all heard it said that actions speak louder than words. And love that is seen means much more than love that's just heard. That's the way that it was with our Savior whose life told the story of love. Someone was watching, someone was listening, dying to know what he knew so well. It helped them believe it if they could just see it. That's why Jesus lived to tell. Now this is my prayer, Lord, help me live what I say. For so many times I know that my actions betray. Let it be like it was with my Savior. Let my life tell his story of love. Because someone is watching and someone is listening, dying to know what we knew so well. It will help them believe it if in us they see it. That's why we must live. And I will live to tell of the one who has rescued my heart. I will live to tell of the one who can bring a new start. Take my life and let it be a reflection of you for the whole world to see. The God who is alive and well, I will live to tell.
Someone is watching. Someone is listening. Could be your neighbor, your brother, your friend. It will help them believe it if in you they see him. So what will you do? Pretty good song. That's the way we want to live. We want to live to tell. I don't want to live my life like a Saul. Right? Do you? We want to live for Christ. Amen? Why don't we stand? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the warnings that we read here, Lord, in in this last chapter of Samuel. Lord, we pray that we would learn the lessons and continue to learn the lessons and hopefully learn the lesson, lessons. Lord, that our life would be something that the world could look at and, and say, I want that, I desire that, I don't have it, and I know that it's right. I, there's something about the fragrance of your life that I just, I don't have and I need it. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you burn that into us? Would you make us those that fragrance of Christ in a world that is dying, that smells of myrrh, Lord, where the smell of death is all around, and yet you've given us the great fragrance of Jesus Christ. Only the children of God can claim that. Lord, how we pray you bless us, encourage us. Lord, help us not to feel um, condemned by anything. But Lord, convicted is okay, but not condemned. Lord, would you please touch our lives tonight and set us on a new course tomorrow morning as we wake, as we wake and, and get into your word, as we draw close to you, Lord. Continue to do that, Lord, that we could live to tell. In Jesus' name, amen.